0: The Venus Rosewater Dish is awarded to the female winner of the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. The dish was first awarded to the champion in 1886. This plate is 19 inches in diameter, and it's fashioned of sterling silver. It was made in 1864, which makes it 148 years old. It's styled after a dish on display in the Louvre. The winner is handed the trophy, and she walks a lap with it around the court. But here's the kicker. She doesn't take it home. It stays at the All England Club. And to me, that's a bummer. You win something, you should take it home. That's disappointing. Wouldn't it be cool on Super Bowl Sunday (laughs) to bring out that baby covered with Doritos and dip? Or serve the Thanksgiving turkey on the Wimbledon platter? Wow! You wouldn't have to throw it in a dishwasher or scrub it with a Brillo pad. I mean, you could just wash and dry it by hand. I'm just saying, why keep the Wimbledon plate on a shelf? Something that valuable should be put to use. And this is God's thinking as well. He loves His church. We are the apple of His eye. We are the blood-bought bride of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians that we are clay vessels, the clay vessels in which God has put the treasures of salvation. You and I are trophies of His amazing grace. But Jesus doesn't keep His dishes on the shelf. He serves up opportunities to serve on a silver platter. He wins us to use us. When Jesus saved your soul, He filled your plate with important business. He dishes up a task or two. And the church at Philadelphia knew the importance of walking through the doors that God opens. I've titled this study, Off the Shelf in Philadelphia. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been studying Jesus' letters to these seven churches of Asia. These cities that he wrote to were among the old Roman postal route. They were spots along the route. There was Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos to the north. And then back uh, eastward toward Thyatira and Sardis. Now we're in Philadelphia. And we begin our study this morning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, now, the word Philadelphia, you know what it means, brotherly love. The Greek king of Pergamos, a man by the name of Eumenes, he founded this city in 189 B.C. He had a brother named Attalus. They weren't just brothers, though. They were best buds. Attalus was so loyal to his brother that he earned the nickname Philadelphos, or literally, one who loves his brother. Thus, the city was named in honor of Attalus. Philadelphia was another city in western Turkey. It was 30 miles and a 2,500 foot ascent eastward from the Hermus Valley in Sardis to the central plateau. In ancient times, the area was known for volcanic activity, thus the soil there was very, very fertile. It was perfect for the cultivation of grapes. It was the Napa Valley of Turkey. The city was built along a major trading route, a highway connecting Europe and Asia. Thus, it was known as the gateway to the east. Though the city of Philadelphia was built on an 800-foot rise, which afforded some natural fortifications, it was never really meant to be a military outpost. Its founders had a different mission for their new city. You see, beyond Philadelphia lay rugged regions. The regions of Phragria and Glacia. The tribes who lived there were backwoods and primitive. Philadelphia was built by the lovers and architects of Greek society who envisioned a launching pad for the Hellenization of Asia. From Philadelphia, the Greek language and customs and culture and religion could be exported eastward to these old uncultured masses. It's interesting, the Christians living in Philadelphia also adopted this same kind of mission mindset. What made this city a bridge for the spread of Greek culture also made it a suitable beachhead for the preaching of the gospel and the spread of Christianity. The church at Philadelphia was a church on a mission. Like the vineyards that dotted the countryside, this was a fruitful church. This was the church of the open door. Philadelphia is a reminder to all churches that we too are on mission. You know, sometimes... The hustle and the bustle, the comings and the goings, the routine of this life dulls our sensitivity to our mission. We forget the big picture. We get so caught up in just getting through the next day. We forget the reason that God has us here in the first place. We lose sight of the issues that will matter a million years from now. You see, we can miss the mission. Familiarity is both the greatest help we have in reaching the people around us, but it's also the greatest hindrance. I mean, knowing the strain on our neighbors, being able to speak their language, recognizing their joys and their goals, help us to frame the gospel in ways that matter to them. But in contrast, familiarity also causes us to become oblivious to those same people and to their needs. I mean, we pass the woman in the grocery store with tears in her eyes just because she's always there. We overlook the clerk at the checkout counter with the ache in his soul because he's always there. Oh, we get excited about an overseas mission trip, but we overlook the folks on the bus that we ride with to work every single day. The very people we're called to reach often blend into the woodwork. We stop seeing them. I have a friend who lives in Philadelphia, PA. He calls his Philly the city of brotherly shove. Hey, do we live there as well? In the city of brotherly shove? Are we so busy getting what we want out of this life that we tend to shove other people aside? If not literally, then mentally. Do we just sort of shove them aside in our minds so we don't have to think about their needs? We grow immune And this is why we have to work at maintaining a missional mindset. I'm not just on this planet to make a living and to take up space. My life needs to count for Jesus. I need to have an eternal impact on my world. The church in Philadelphia, they lived up to their name. Brotherly love was their trademark. They loved God and they loved the people around them. They got off the shelf to serve. And here's what motivated their missional mindset. They served a God who always is and stays on mission. Notice how Jesus introduces Himself to this church, verse 7. These things says, He who is holy, He who is true, He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Here's a grand entrance for the risen and glorified and exalted Lord Jesus. Here's a threefold introduction. He's holy and He's true and He carries keys on His belt. Jesus is He who is holy. In other words, Jesus is like no one else. Jesus is in a class all by Himself. If I said that Jesus is love, that would be one thing. But to say that He's holy means that He loves Like no one else loves. To say that Jesus is faithful is one thing, but to say that He's holy is to say that He has His own category of faithfulness. To say that Jesus is righteous is one thing, but to say He's holy is to say He's right in a way that exposes everyone else as being wrong. In chapter four, the angels that surround heaven's throne shout out, Holy, holy, holy. That's our Lord Jesus. He who is holy. Jesus is also he who is true. In the ancient Greek language, there were two different words translated true. One was true and not false. The other was true and not fake. The word translated here is true and not fake. In other words, there's nothing phony. There's nothing hypocritical. There's nothing disingenuous about Jesus. He's authentic. He's full of integrity. He never pretends to be something that He's not. Jesus is holy like no one else. And He's true. He's all that He claims to be. And if we follow Him, we too will be holy and true. A life that's holy is set apart to Jesus. We're here for His purposes, not our own. We're people on mission. Thus, we need to be undistracted from this world and stay true to our calling. Well, thirdly, notice too, Jesus introduces Himself as He who has the key of David. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. You see, Isaiah was writing in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah. And his chief of staff, Shebna, had the keys to the kingdom. But Shebna had misused the king's authority and he'd brought shame upon Judah. God had to fire Shebna. And in his place, God appointed a new chief of staff, a man named Eliakim. And in Isaiah 22, verse 22, God promised to clothe this Eliakim in regal robes and to strengthen him and to give him great authority. God declares, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Eliakim would have dominion over the whole realm. He was given keys that unlocked the king's treasury and opened up the king's storehouse and provided access to the king's presence and even unleashed the king's army. And this is the authority that has now been given to our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the king of the jungle. He roars and doors swing open. He roars again. And doors slam shut. Jesus has more keys hanging on his belt than a nighttime security guard. The living Lord Jesus, he unlocks what he wants to open and he deadbolts what he wants to shut. If it's treasure you need, or sustenance for which you hunger, or access to God that for, you, for which you desire, or power and might you relish, look to Jesus. He is the one who has the keys. Now, some of you have keys that open the front door of Calvary Chapel. You didn't give them back when you borrowed them from us before. (laughs) But they don't open the offices. They open the front door, but not the offices. Now, we have some staff people. They have keys that open their office, but they don't open my office. At least, hopefully, they don't. But I have a key that opens every single door in the building. It's the master key. And Jesus has a master key for all the universe. It unlocks heaven to His followers, but it locks hell to the rebels. It opens Scripture to believing hearts, but it shuts it up to those who doubt. It buzzes a Christian into God's blessings, but it keeps the unbeliever outside. It swings open God's acceptance to people who repent, but it slams it shut on those who harden their hearts. Jesus has a key that does all the above. After Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were hiding there in the upper room behind locked doors, afraid that they'd be next. Suddenly, Jesus appeared. He passed right through the wall. He didn't care about keys or doors or locks. But now, He has ascended to heaven, and He's been crowned with authority He's been given the messianic keys of David and of God's kingdom. We're told in Isaiah 9, the government will be upon His shoulder. Today, Jesus is all about opening and shutting doors. He allocates opportunity. Jesus has a key that opens and no one shuts. And shuts and no one opens. He has the final word. And notice what else that key fits. Verse 8, I know your works... See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Jesus has the key to the door of opportunity. And He was busy opening doors for the church in Philadelphia. Here's good news. When you decide to make your life count for Jesus, when you go on mission for Jesus, He starts opening doors for you. Just as a conscientious groom is sure to open the door for His bride, Jesus will open doors for His bride. I mean, for some of you logger-headed husbands, your wedding day was the last time you opened a door for your poor wife. But not Jesus. He is the perfect gentleman. Opening doors for His bride is Jesus' specialty. Well, as we've mentioned every week, these seven churches in Asia were not just actual churches. They also represented eras of church history. And the Church of Philadelphia is associated with the great missionary centuries, the 1700s and 1800s and 1900s. The first great awakening occurred in England in the early 18th century when men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached the gospel. The spiritual revival that took place there sowed the seeds of freedom and democracy that would eventually spark the American Revolution. The second great awakening occurred during the early 19th century A spiritual movement that brought salvation to the souls of men also set in motion the social consciousness that led to the abolition of slavery. Historian J. Edwin Orr, he writes this of the Second Great Awakening. He says, In the mid-1800s, people began to be converted at the rate of 10,000 a week in New York City. The movement spread throughout New England. Church bells would bring people to prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and 6 in the evening. Baptists had so many people to baptize, they couldn't get them in their churches. They went down to the river, cut a square in the ice and baptized them. In 1857, more than one million people were converted. The revival crossed the Atlantic, broke out in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, South Africa and South India. Its effect was felt for 40 years. The aftermath of these two great awakenings was the missionary movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. William Carey took the gospel to to India. Adoniram Judson took it to Burma. Hudson Taylor moved out and spread Christianity through inland China. You see, the Philadelphian era saw a church on the move. Even in more modern times, the church continues to go through open doors. From Bible translation to Billy Graham, from mission societies to mass evangelism to medical outreach, the gospel has now come to millions. And the Lord of the harvest continues to open doors for those who have faith enough to walk through them. What a stark contrast we find among these first century churches in Asia. Sardis rested on its reputation and its past successes while it literally died on the vine. Whereas Philadelphia was full of fresh faith. On the lookout for open doors. On the map, those two churches were separated by merely 30 miles. But in terms of mission, they were light years apart. In November 2010, a wedding took place on the Australian coast. After the ceremony, the wedding party, they went to a scenic spot along the shoreline to take pictures. During the posing... A woman, unrelated to the wedding, fell into the ocean and began to drown. Immediately, the tuxedo-clad best man dove in and he pulled the woman to the shore. The bride, still in her wedding gown, who also happened to be a nurse, she waded into the surf to perform CPR. Well, by the time the lifeguards arrived, the victim had already regained consciousness. And it was thanks to two people who weren't so much caught up in their own stuff that they missed an opportunity to save a life. You see, the choice that bride and that best man made that day illustrate the decisions that you and I are called on to make every single day. Ultimately, why are we here? Think about it for a minute. Why are we here? Is it to dress up for parties and pose for pictures? Or does God want to use us to rescue drowning people? Well, certainly getting married is a big deal in God's will. Nobody begrudges a Christian getting married. But ultimately, what is even marriage about if not to bring glory to God? If it's all about parties and posing, then even a good thing can knock us off mission. See, the church in Philadelphia, they saw their neighbors and their friends and their co-workers and even strangers drowning in the surf. And they put their parties and pictures on hold to seize the opportunity. God gave them open doors to influence people, and they walked through them. And God will give you open doors as well. If your life is on mission, you won't have to waste a lot of time looking for opportunities to be used. You can expect God to bring hungry, hurting people across your path. Trust me, there's no shortage of need out there. God wants to blow your mind with the marvelous and mighty and many ways that He can use your life for His purposes. And speaking of open doors, let me just point out two. First is the diversification we see in our community. Everywhere I go these days, I see folks from other countries. People are flocking to America from all over the globe. You know, our country is slowly looking more and more like the world at large. We no longer have to go around the world to be a missionary. Just walk across the street. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus commanded his first disciples to go into all the world. Today, the Lord of the open door is bringing the world to us. Are we taking advantage of the opportunities? And the second open door that I'd like to point out are the incredible breakthroughs that we've seen in technology. Through podcasts and live stream and apps and tweets and texts and Facebook, you no longer have to be a mega church to have a mega impact. Bible studies from Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain go all over the world via the internet even into Muslim bloc countries that are closed politically to the gospel. Some of our teachings are being downloaded. The internet is really just another net that we can use to fish for men. These are doors that Jesus is opening to us. In recent years, I've been floored with the amazing opportunities that God has given me to share His Word across the country and around the world. Just this past September, I spoke twice in California Arkansas, Virginia, and upstate Washington. I can't believe how this has happened. I have no idea how it's happened. I didn't seek it or promote it. I wasn't trying to put myself out there. In God's timing, He just started opening doors. And I've walked through as many as I can. The Lord Jesus makes a surprising statement in verse 8. He says, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. You know, you would expect Jesus to say to a church as active as Philadelphia that she had great strength. But apparently not. This was just a small church with meager resources, but they trusted in a big God. They trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit. This church learned the truth of Paul's statement to the Corinthians, when I am weak, then I am strong. The power of Jesus always makes up for our inadequacies. Remember, Jesus is never limited by our lack. He specializes in doing much with the little you bring Him. He fed the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. The widow's two mites were the more impressive offering. More than just tipping God, she gave all she had left. And faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, Jesus says, will move mountains. You see God specializes in turning our meagerness into much. Philadelphia was a church without fancy facilities or a big bank account or loads of manpower or skilled staff or lots of clever ideas. She had little strength. Yet Jesus opened doors for this church and gave her enough strength to walk through those doors. You don't have to be big to leave a big footprint. In fact, you can never be too little for God to use, but you can be too big. Philadelphia trusted in God's power, not their own prowess, and God made them productive. The church's impact wasn't in proportion to its size. It had a far greater influence than you would have thought. And here's two more reasons why. Jesus says of this church at the end of verse 8, They have kept my word... And have not denied my name. Philadelphia was a fruitful church because they were a faithful church. They upheld God's word. And they refused to deny his name. What a stellar resume. Understand Philadelphia and Smyrna were the only two churches Jesus doesn't rebuke. Not that they were perfect churches. There's no such thing. All churches are made up of people and all people are sinners. But these two churches had no glaring weaknesses, nothing Jesus felt he needed to rebuke. There was no flaw, no chink in the armor, nothing Jesus needed to point out. He's all about encouraging the church of Philadelphia to greater fruitfulness. Notice Jesus commends this church. You kept my word. And this is where it begins. If you want good fruit, then establish a good root. Influential churches are built on teaching God's Word. What we believe really does matter. Remember the church at Pergamos? Compromised biblical truth. They mixed human philosophy in with Christianity. Thyatira, they were worse. They ignored God's Word completely. They tolerated full-scale idolatry and immorality. You see, here's what you need to realize. Spiritually speaking... No one starts out on track with God. When we're born into this world, we're born sinners. We all begin behind the eight ball. Our heart is cold and our eyes are blind and our neck is stiff. Hey, we just don't know God. This is why once a person receives new life, the first step is to solve the problem. You need to get to know God. A faithful church reads and learns and studies and keeps God's Word. I like what C.S. Lewis once said, if you do not listen to theology, it does not mean you have no ideas about God. It means you have a lot of wrong ideas. You start behind the eight ball and unless you correct it, you remain there. The fog doesn't clear up until you get into God's Word. And over the next several months, we're going to be studying verse by verse and chapter by chapter through big chunks of the Bible. What better way to learn this book than to come back and join us on Sunday nights for our Through the Bible study. Well, they kept his word. And then Jesus says that you have not denied my name. When their allegiance to Jesus was tested, they refused to back down. They stood strong. Apparently, they were loyal even in the face of opposition. And there's no secret where this hostility came from. Notice verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Notice there were Jews in Philadelphia who exalted law over grace works above faith, and they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And thus their synagogue became the enemy's headquarters there in Philadelphia. Their rabbis were attacking the Jews in the community who had believed and who had become Christians. Jesus is saying they may have had a Jewish pedigree, but they're not part of God's family. As Paul said to the Romans, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly in the Spirit. And this is not just true of Philadelphia synagogue. It's true of churches all across America today. You know, there are people in our churches today who think that they're right with God and a part of God's family because of some outward observance. Because they go to church or they perform a ritual or they give an offering. But inwardly, there has been no change. Guys, becoming a Christian isn't like putting on your makeup. That's for the women, that is. It's more than cosmetic. It's not just turning over a new leaf or adopting a new habit. This is why Jesus says you must be born again. You need a changed heart to be a Christian. That's something only Jesus can do. The Jews in Philadelphia thought that they were on God's team, but in reality, they were lining up on the wrong side of the ball. And one day they're going to be forced to admit it. Jesus says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. These believers who had been violated will one day be vindicated. The Jews who had trashed them and accused them and attacked them will in the end realize that the Christians were the folks that God loved all along. Jesus says that these Jews will worship before your feet. Notice, not before your toes, but before your heels. One day, every knee will bow before Jesus. As well as the Jews from this synagogue of Satan, every knee will bow. When that day comes, everyone will be lined up behind the believers who have already concluded that Jesus is Lord. They won't bow before us or to us. They'll bow with us. They'll worship before our heels, not before our toes. Ironically, there are several Old Testament prophecies that speak of Gentiles bowing before Jews. But because the Jews rejected Jesus, in the end, the roles will be reversed. It's the Jews who will bow along with the Gentiles before our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Jesus promises this church, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now understand, the church in Philadelphia, as well as the church in every age, is subject to tribulation. Jesus promised, in this world you will have tribulation. But there is a difference between the tribulation the world aims at the church and the tribulation God has reserved for the world. God promises this world an hour of trial. Now, not necessarily a literal hour, but the, the term hour specifies a duration of time, that there's a start to this and there's a finish to this judgment. And it's not localized, notice. It affects the whole world. This period of time goes by different names in Scripture. The time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation. But it's the time when God will unleash His judgment on this rebel planet. That time is coming. A just God will punish an evil world. Notice this hour of trial is reserved for the earth dwellers, for those who dwell on the earth. That's good news for you and me because we're citizens of heaven, not earth. And by this juncture, we're going to be caught up with Jesus. Jesus doesn't just promise to get you through. I like verse 10. It's specific. He promises to keep you from. Understand the structure of the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3 are about the church age. The church gets mentioned 19 times. But in chapter 4, a door opens in heaven. A trumpet blows, a voice calls out. Come up, he says. Read Paul's description of the rapture, the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the two events sound identical. Revelation 1 through 3 is about the church. The church gets mentioned 19 times, but then for 14 chapters from Revelation 6 to 19, the church is never mentioned once. Instead, the Lord Jesus reveals these terrible cataclysms that will crash the planet. In Revelation 4 verse 1, John is invited, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. This being the church age. You see, it's after the church is airlifted to safety, after the rapture, That all hell breaks loose on earth. Jesus promises safety to us from this hour of trial. He says for the church. He promises this to the church that perseveres. He says, verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. How will he keep him from the hour of trial? He says he'll come quickly. He'll come suddenly. You see, as soon as judgment comes down, the church goes up. And we all may be that generation that experiences the rapture of the church. That never tastes death. How cool would that be? I like these words from the old southern preacher. It's time for this church to wake up and sing up and preach up and pray up and never give up or let up or back up or shut up until we all get filled up or go up. There's one certainty. Jesus will return for a feisty bunch. Believers who persevere and who hold fast. You know, Brazilians have an interesting word for endurance. Look up the word gara in a Portuguese dictionary and you'll discover the word means fingernails. A person with endurance is a person with nails. They can dig in and they can hold on. And if you want to enjoy all of God's wonderful promises, you need some nails to hold on. In verse 12, Jesus has several rewards for the faithful church in Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. This had special meaning for anyone living in Philadelphia during the first century. Pillars were a key feature of Greco-Roman architecture. All ancient buildings included pillars. Stone pillars were structural and load-bearing and permanent. Pillars often lasted longer than the buildings. The buildings would be in ruin, but the pillars were still standing. And being likened to a pillar was a promise of security. A pillar is like a believer. We have an eternal place, a permanent place in the temple of God. Hey, when the world falls apart around you, and everything that can be shaken ends up shaken, Believers in Jesus who overcame through faith will stand tall like pillars. You and I will be a pillar in the temple of our God. What a wonderful promise. And then he says, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and from God. And I will write on him my new name. Now notice this. According to verse 12, Jesus is a tattoo artist. Our Lord Jesus is into ink. Did you know that today 15% of all Americans have a tattoo? Did you know that? That's one in eight. That's 40 million people. Did you know that 36% of 20 somethings have a tattoo? That's one in three. Here's a stat. 13% of Republicans and 15% of Democrats have tattoos. Maybe at the next presidential debate, the moderator will ask the candidates to show us their tattoos. (laughs) Understand, when you walk into this church, or any church for that matter, it takes a while to pick out the true believers. Just because a person comes to church... Just because they can quote some scripture, just because they, can, they say they're a Christian, that doesn't make them one. So to identify the true believers, you'll have to hang around a while. You're going to have to inspect the fruit. You know, what's being produced in their life? Is there a love for God? Is there any love for others? But if you had spiritual eyes to see, it would be easy to pick out the Christians. You could walk into this room and you could pick us all out instantly. Why? Because every believer has a spiritual tattoo. Actually, multiple tattoos. Three, in fact. We're all tatted up. Jesus has ink that can mark a spiritual canvas. He writes three names on your spirit. The first is the name of God. Yahweh is that name. Yahweh is the name of the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to God. That's why He writes His name on you. We are His possession. I remember when we were kids and we were headed out to summer camp. Mom would always write our name in our underwear. Now, you don't want to get your underwear mixed up at camp. You don't want to put on somebody else's whitey tidies. That's really creepy. The first rule of camp is to check the name. This is why Jesus writes God's name on us. We're His belongings. And He's marked us as His own. The second name Jesus writes on us is the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. This is heaven, but heaven has an official name. Did you know that? It's the New Jerusalem. This is also so encouraging. God has stamped me with my destination. He stamped your destination on you as well. Did you know for every 1,000 passengers that fly Delta Airlines, there are a measly 2.66 reports of mishandled bags? That's pretty good. 2.66 out of 1,000. There's only one problem. One of those two mishandled bags is always mine. <laughs> That's why I never check my bags, man. You fly with me and you carry on. But when you fly with God, you always reach your destination. He's never lost or mishandled a single bag or boy or girl. If you could see with spiritual eyes, you've got this big, broad, new Jerusalem tatted right across your shoulder. And then finally, Jesus says he's tattooed us with my new name. The idea of a new name expresses intimacy. Jesus is hes committed to keeping our relationship with him fresh. And new and vibrant. That's why He continues to give us new names. He continues to invest in us by revealing new aspects of His nature and His names. You know, I read recently an article on the power of renaming. Giving something a new name doesn't alter what's being named. But you can correct misconceptions. And you can instill new meaning through the process of renaming. For example. Restaurants had a tough time selling dolphin fish. People confused it with the mammal by the same name. I mean, customers thought they were eating flipper. Nobody wants to eat flipper. How do you order dolphin? So in the mid-1980s, restaurant owners renamed dolphin fish. Today they call it, My, my. Yum, yum. Hey, today... Chinese gooseberries are a popular selling fruit. But it took a name change. In the 60s, produce sellers dropped the gooseberries and they called it kiwi. Like key lime pie. Understand, I'm not suggesting there's anything about Jesus that needs changing or needs freshening up. But the promise of a new name reminds me that there's more to Jesus than I've previously known. Realize, Jesus is always bigger than my understanding of Him. This is why we need to be open to His new names. Well, Jesus tats us up with names. His own, because He owns us. New Jerusalem, because He's going to deliver us there. And then He wants us to have a new name, because He wants us to know more of Him. Well, Jesus is the King of the jungle. When He roars, demons flee, and mountains melt like wax and obstacles disappear, and bolted doors swing open. Maybe you need a door opened in your life this morning. Don't call a locksmith. Call the Lord of the open door. And when He opens a door of opportunity, have some faith. Get off the shelf and on the move. Have faith enough to walk through that open door. Let's pray together. while our heads are bowed and while our eyes are closed I, you know i need i need to ask us all this morning have we walked through the open door today is the day of the open door understand one day the door's going to be closed there'll be no more opportunity the bible says that today is the day of salvation today is the day that jesus has afforded us the opportunity to come to him to receive his forgiveness To let him be the Lord and the Savior and the Master of our life. Today the door is open to us, but that doesn't mean the door will always remain open. One day it's gonna close. One day it's gonna close for all of us. We don't know when that day will come. It could be today. Right now, the door's open. You could walk out these doors. You could drop over of a heart attack in the parking lot. You could be hit in a car accident on the way. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just being real with you. We we don't know when that door's going to close on us. All we know is that today, that door's open. Right now, that door's open. And it's open to you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, and you've never walked through that open door, I'm going to give you that opportunity this morning. I'm first going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that you'll have courage to come. And then I'm going to call you to step out of your seat and come forward. And together, we're going to pray a prayer here in this altar. And so I'd just like to ask, is there anybody here that would say, Pastor Sandy, I I really want to come this morning. Pray for me. Pray that I'll have the courage to come. Is there anybody that would say, yes, that's me. I want to go through that open door today while I have the opportunity. Would you raise your hand? I'd like to pray for you. And then I'm going to invite you to come. Anybody? Great, great. Yeah, I see your hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? Go ahead and raise your hand. That's a first step. That's saying, Yes, Lord, it, it's me. I, I, I'm acknowledging this pull, this tug you've put on my heart, and I'm, I'm going to come. I want to come. I, I want prayer. Is there anybody? Anybody else that would say, I want to come? Just raise your hand. Not going to pause for much longer, but I really believe there's some, some others that might want to raise their hand and join this gentleman who already has. Anybody else? Great. Good. I see your hand. Great. Anybody else? There's an open door today, but we don't know how long that door will be open. If Jesus is giving you that open door today, you want to make sure you walk through it. Anybody else? Great. Okay, let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for these that have raised their hand. Lord, I do pray that today you would give them the courage to step out in faith. And to walk through the open door today. Lord Jesus, you have the keys. When you open the door, no one can shut it. But when you close the door, no man can open it. And Lord, I pray for those today who stand before the open door. Help them not take it for granted. Lord, help them not waste this opportunity. But I pray that they would walk through. Give them the faith. Give them the courage today. To walk through that open door. To receive you into their life. To be all that you intend to be. And you desire to be. And so Lord I pray for those that raise their hand. I even pray for those who who maybe were, uh, were not willing or didn't do it. For whatever reason. Lord they can still come forward today. They can still receive you. They can still walk through that open door. And so we pray for those today that they would come and that they could receive your forgiveness and your love for them. We love you, Lord. We pray that you'll have your way in these next few moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.